Hello, Long Beach. Welcome to Artist Banter, a podcast focusing on arts and entertainment in Long Beach, brought to you by the Daily 49er staff. My name is Aziza Gomez, and I will be your host today. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Brad Cummings. Brad and his wife Stephanie are owners of the Rock Academy here in Long Beach and have recently been selected for the 2022 Best of Long Beach Award in the Music School category. In addition to being a successful entrepreneur, Brad has been performing and recording professionally for over 40 years with notable artists such as Sting and Metallica. His movie soundtrack credits include iconic films like Austin Powers' Spy Who Shagged Me, and his commercial credits include making jingles for Coke, Sprite, and Morongo Casino. Hello, Brad. How are you doing today? Good, Aziza. How are you? I'm doing well. Awesome. Yeah, I had a good lesson yeah. before getting here, so great. I'm in the I'm in the spirit. So my yeah. first question is, how did you start your journey as a musician, and how did you go about becoming a business owner? Ah, boy, that's it's gonna be a long answer here. <laughs> um, I I grew up in Hermosa Beach in the South Bay. Um, my mom, Carol Joe Cummings, was a nightclub performer pianist lyricist uh she used to you know tell limericks and funny jokes entertain she was the the you know the quintessential entertainer nightclub entertainer and so it wouldn't be uncommon as a little kid like nine years old to go to my mom's gig and fall asleep in one of those tuck and roll booths you know (laughs) of the restaurant while she was playing Music was always around my household. We always had a piano in the house. And she was she was a great performer. And, and you know, I mean, just growing up at the beach, um, I was able to enjoy the beach and surf, which is a big passion of mine. Uh, I've been surfing as long as I've been playing music, which wow. is decades. So, yeah, thankfully I can still do it. So that's kind of how I got into music. Uh, as I was growing up, I I asked my mom for drums. And she was like, nah, your older brother played drums. I don't want all that loud stuff in the house. <laughs> but we had this big brown velvet chair in the living room, and it had a nice thud when you whacked it with a stick. Uh-huh. So I used to put a Beatles record, LP, right, the 12-inch vinyl, on a, a console stereo system and start playing drums to Beatles songs on this chair because it just had a nice thump. Wow. So I was kind of giving myself rhythmic training. Uh, and then I'd walk over to the piano out of boredom um, and try to find the melody they were singing or the guitar line or whatever the, the melodic part of the music was. I'd start finding those notes on the keyboard. So fast forward a number of years. I'm in junior high school, and there was two competing bands in our high school. One was called Hot and Nasty. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one was like Shadow. And they used to play our school assemblies, um, and it was just the cool. I thought it was the coolest thing because they were they weren't bad. One was kind of like a Stonesy band, Rolling Stones, and the other one was more like a Deep Purple techno prog rock band. Um, and I saw them play, and I was like, I want to be in that band. So I used to crash house parties they would play at, wow. and I would ask to sit in. Can I sit in on drums? Can I sit in on drums? And they'd always like be like, Hey, just go away, dude. We already got a drummer. <laughs> So like the biographies of many bass players that I have read through the years, uh, I ended up on bass by default. Finally, after bugging these bands so much, one of the guitar players said, hey, you you can be in our band if you want to learn to play bass. Mm. And I didn't know what a bass was. I thought the Beatles were all holding guitars. (laughs) 
<laughs> which is my ignorance, right? So then I was like, well, all right. So he goes, go, come to my garage. I got a bass. And I remember going to his garage, and he hands me this electric bass guitar, and then he showed me Jumpin' Jack Flash by Rolling Stones on it. And it's like, dun, dun, da, 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 da. And I, somehow, it just struck me as super easy. And I, I attribute that to my years of fiddling with my mom's piano and getting intervolic training. And then the rhythm of beating on this old chair was giving me the grooves, like, doom, chicka, doom, chicka, doom, you know, all of that stuff that your brain puts together, it was kind of there for me. So when I plucked, picked up a bass for the first time, it, I didn't find it strikingly hard. I was like, you bang on the string you want to make sound with. Here's the rhythm, you know, that I need. And there's like four chords to so many rock songs. Well, right. four notes on this fretboard, and I got, I got it. So yeah. I literally, like, I did it, and my friend looks at me and goes, that's it, you're our bass player. <laughs> so that's I was, a, yeah, so I was literally in a band from the day I touched the bass, which thankfully, I, I'm lucky because had I had to just study reading and theory like traditional instrumentations usually do i probably would have said ah forget this i'm going surfing right. but the fact that i was with my buddies we're playing music um and i'm jamming and then pretty soon we're playing at the school and i'm a little rock star you know <laughs> back when i had hair <laughs> i had long blonde hair i was kind of a spicoli uh if you know the movie fast times at ridgemont high i was kind of the spicoli of our school Beautiful. Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, so that made the journey fun. And um, of course, I took a lot of private lessons um, through the years. And my mom was supportive in that. One of the reasons I opened this music school was because as I look back on my career, I found a big detach between my theory lessons and sight reading um, and then actually playing music in my real world with my friends. My teachers never said, why do you need to know a major and minor triad? Well, what are the songs you're playing with your friends? Mm -hmm. This is how it applies to the songs because, you know, when I teach bass, I'm like teaching them, look, you got to know your scales. You got to know your your interval jumps, your thirds, fifths, sevenths, you know, because you, you can apply that to any song. After looking back at all the private lessons and I was like, man, these guys never taught me because I'm reading out of Mel Bay books and and my ear was so much stronger than my reading skills that I would start reading this baseline might be a blues baseline. Right. Well, half a measure, two measures into it, I'm like, I can play hipper stuff than what's here. <laughs> so I never wanted to rely on the ink. I started doing sessions in Hollywood and they started handing me real sheet music and I was like, oh, crap. I've never listened. done this on a paid gig. <laughs> yeah. And oh, I man. just like a deer caught in the headlights. It took years for me to even understand what a double DS and a coda and all the, the, the roadmaps that you need to learn. Um, it took me years for people to explain this stuff to me. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, uh, if I look back the last 20, 30 years, uh, my church gigs were some of the best music school I ever had. None of my private lessons ever really taught me that stuff. Right. So that's one of the reasons when I we opened this music school, I was like, man, I'm going to teach drums and bass on such a logical application way um, that I think the light bulb will stay on in the student and they'll go, oh, I know that rhythm. You're going to hear that rhythm a billion times in pop music. Why not look, see what it looks like written out, understand the subdivisions, how you find those rhythms, 
and that's your jumping you know your platform to to get to to read and then you know you take your reading wherever you want to you want to be a symphonic player then read a lot it's funny because i have musician friends in my in my circle that consider me a really good sight reader <laughs> i personally don't think that but it's nice to have that skill I mean, you know? if you think about it, if you're looking at music like how you're looking at it, where you're just like, okay, this is one rhythm that shows up in this genre a lot. Of course, you're going to be yeah. much quicker at picking oh, up styles yeah. and Especially all that. Especially for rhythm section players, because so much of what we do is a two-bar, four-bar phrase, and it's repeated over and over. So that's kind of one of the reasons we opened the music school. I thought, well, it's been a crazy career for me. Um, the music business has changed dramatically during my career mm -hmm. whereas the new generation you guys like you're you're more going to be more you know adept to recording on a laptop i mean we never had that when i was a kid it was to do a real serious recording session you had to go to a major studio in hollywood and it cost a lot of money um and you know you you would record on these giant two-inch tape machines <laughs> and Punching in and editing was really difficult and time-consuming back then. So there was a huge emphasis um, on us as rhythm section players to get our parts and nail it from the start of the downbeat to the last hit of the song. Because if we made a mistake in the middle, it cost studio time. Literally, like, yep. they would have to take the tape off the heads, cut it, splice it, and then try to or try to punch you in which was harder to do back then nowadays with you know pro tools logic reaper whatever people are using it's just instantaneous right um so so it was interesting and and then back then um the music labels you know rca bmg or whatever uh warner brothers they had so much money and they really ruled musicians careers so you, the goal as a mu young musician is to go be seen on the strip in Hollywood or wherever it is, but you want to get in front of A&R people that can possibly go, we dig what you guys are doing. They had huge budgets back then. I mean, I was working with Vinks, a friend of mine, really good singer percussionist, and we were playing up and down the, the L.A. strip. And David Geffen, I guess, got wind of us and was willing to give us a hundred thousand dollars to go in the studio just to do pre-production to see if it's something they can work with wow and these days that doesn't happen very mm -hmm. often most people are in their homes recording on their laptops and you're hearing great recording i mean mm -hmm. that's the 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 exciting thing is i see young musicians coming up and they have access to every style and, and information and lessons and and the people that are have skill sets, um, they're getting really good really fast. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's kind of a double-edged sword because in a way, like, for a situation that you just uh, mentioned where you can get, like, discovered, like, you could be nobody, but th they'll see that potential, like, marketability that you have yep. as a brand, as a musician, and they'll be like, okay, we're going to give you this advance for you to do it. But nowadays, as a musician, you have to know how to market yourself. You have to know, like, all these social channels that you could um, yes. talk through, and you have to have a following. You yeah. have to build and yourself until they can think, okay, this is easy. We're going to invest in you, but you have to be like kind of finished. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree with you. And and luckily, um, what you're seeing is better channels to get your music exposed. Yeah. Um, I set up something called Reverb Nation. It's a website for musicians to post their works. 
and I did it years ago just so I'd have like an online resume I can hand people. I never That's I awesome. did, never thought about like marketing SoundCloud? it. Like SoundCloud? It's kind of like SoundCloud. Okay. And um, I've had the site for maybe 20 years now. And I, I have over 600 fans worldwide that have bounced. I don't know how they even find me, but they bounced <laughs> on it and they've, they've subscribed to me. And, you know, some of them are in Denmark, Norway. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool, man. And, <laughs> you know, I can friend them back. And, uh, but I don't claim to be the guru on how to market that stuff. But, but this new generation of musician is able to, to do this on a right. dime budget. I mean, mm-hmm. they have the skill set to record at home, make awesome sounding recordings. And if they have talent and there's a vibe to them, they have a way, a channel now to get those people uh, very economically um, where people go, yeah, I dig what you're doing. And I think that the mindset, um, hopefully for artists now is like, if you dig them, support them. Don't just steal their music, right? I mean, I, I, I self-admittedly use YouTube for teaching all the time. And yeah, we all do, right? But, yeah. you know, the, the sites, they get you get enough hits on YouTube, you're getting advertising. I put up with the ads because I know right. the artists are getting money from it. And that's fine. Um, but but there's better channels and there's, there's ways to market your stuff. Um, you know, in the old days, people used to tour to support their records, mm-hmm. to help sell record sales. And now, like my buddy uh, Rob Trujillo, who's in Metallica, he's the first one to tell you, he's like, dude, everything's flipped now. We tour to push our records because we make more money selling swag at the concerts right. they sell out um, than they do from record sales. Because the music, it's so hard to monetize. And the streams are so... The streams, the streams are everywhere. Yeah. I mean, people can hear Metallica for free. Why? How are you selling a record now? It's, right. So, so the whole thing's kind of flipped on its head. And I remember those, those years when it first started happening where the record labels were freaking out because they no longer had complete stranglehold on marketing of a musician's mm-hmm. uh monetizing music right. you know so it's it's been interesting to see where it's all going and yeah and what's yeah. cool is that what used to be now like one label's job has kind of exploded into multiple like different distribution channels so for example yep. i was listening to a podcast the other day and they were saying like there's different like um I'm getting the words, but there's different people now who would like fo- who will only focus on like your streams and making mm-hmm. sure that you're getting your money's worth. And then there's other people who will like before you drop your single will make like 30 days worth of advertisement so that you're kind of just like a motor at that point. Yeah. You're throwing out advertisings and then the single drop is here and everyone's engaged. Yeah. You know, and back in the day that all used to be done by the record label. Right. And then yeah. you give the cuts away. Absolutely. And now like it, it's more cost efficient to say like, okay, me, Aziza, I'm a good singer. I'm a good songwriter. I'm, I have a best friend. He's good at producing. I'm going to let him do that. But now I have to like fill in these holes of like, okay, who's going to teach me how to sign up for like a distribute a distributor right. and to s- how to sync my music and license my music and all that. And I think it's awesome that we have the opportunity to decide where each of those things are going to go and who's who we entrust yeah. with that. Yeah. Which back in the day, I feel like that's why musicians had to put up with so much because they were in the dark about so many of their things in their career completely right there i can't tell you how many great artists and groups 
got shelved mm. because for whatever reason, um, I did a record with a band called The Stabilizers, and they had one hit in the 80s. Uh, and they were kind of, how can I explain? They were kind of like Tears for Fears meets in excess or something then I mean, they had pop quality uh-huh. and good melodies and but they were kind of technical uh techno on the music it was it was cool stuff it was crafty and i did this record and i was like man this is cool this is gonna be killing and it got shelved it never got released Ugh. yeah and, and but at that point too like if they were signed to a label like they got that advance and now mm-hmm. they have to sell this amount of like this amount of copies and if they don't do that they're kind of tied to the label yeah. there's um there's like a specific case that i'm thinking of uh the singer named jojo and she was big in the early 2000s yeah and i think she signed to a label and she couldn't release any music so for maybe like five or ten years she wasn't releasing any music Unbelievable. and now she's coming back she's touring she's making music yeah. she's happy but i just think of all of like all like all these minority groups that get taken advantage of mm-hmm. like say you and i like we're young we want to sell our music we want to just be musicians and not have to worry about part-time job whatever right. but there I, I heard the other day that like labels are like the worst um loaners like like to loan you money because yeah, they're, they're loan basically sharks, right they're loan sharks sure. they're like okay we're taking 80 percent of your revenue. yeah well that's always <laughs> been you know if you think about it, artists are free spirits. They mm-hmm. they love to just be what they are. That doesn't always equate to being a good businessman. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean yep. that there aren't some artists who are very savvy businessmen, and there are, but I think the majority are probably not. And and they just want to, you know, be able to survive and and play their music, put their music out there and have people give them love back because right. that's what feeds artists, you know. Yeah. Um, and and but you also got to make a living at the right. end of the day. You got to be able to put a dollar figure on your efforts mm-hmm. and so that you can continue to do it. Yeah. And it's it's always been a rough go for for a lot of folks because of that because you have the sharks out there mm-hmm. they they recognize the talent but if they're unethical <laughs> they will exploit that talent mm-hmm. yeah so i have a couple questions mm-hmm. how did you fill in that gap of like okay i'm not a starving musician anymore i'm like critically acclaimed yeah. i know my worth like how did you start to believe that you could negotiate your worth with others and how yeah. did you stand your ground yes yeah. I mean, I was in a bunch of great musical projects as a young musician, and always, I always just expected um, that we were going to be successful. For a while, I was working with Scott Weiland, the singer from Stone Temple Pilots, and he was producing a band I was in called Big Blue Missile. But he comes running in the studio one day going, hey man, Mike Myers and Madonna called me, and they want me to submit a couple songs for this Austin Powers movie that's coming up. And he, and he looked at us and he goes, what do you think we should do? I want to demo up some songs. And we're all like kind of just brainstorming. We picked a David Bowie song because Scott was a big David Bowie fan. And then because of the 60s vibe of the movie, we said, how about Time of the Season for Loving by the Zombies? Yeah. And, you know, doom, doom, doom. Yeah. So, so we, 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 just, we all kind of came to agreement one afternoon. And so we fired up the studio and we submitted it because it was on a deadline. And sure enough, the Mike, Mike Myers and Madonna heard it and said, we love both songs. We want to use them. 
So we were like, oh, wow, that's cool. <laughs> um, but I think the David Bowie camp won a million dollars for licensing. <laughs> so they shelved that song and they used the Zombies song, mm -hmm. which went on the soundtrack. That's why there's that platinum record on the that's wall amazing. out there. It's crazy, huh? There was so much buzz in the Hollywood scene. We were playing all the Sunset Clubs and that we just kind of expected like we were going to be the next big thing. Mm -hmm. And then... What I found was, as our lead singer, as more money was being talked about, he got weirder. Mm. And it was like a, maybe a fear of success subconsciously. Mm. I don't know, but I, had, I experienced it in other bands where someone would self-implode. Right when you were the do success, the door of success, they would sabotage it. Oh, and that's what happened. And we were like right there. And then all of a sudden, money's being talked about. That doesn't mean you're a rock star. That means you need to pay attention to what they're offering yeah. and make business decisions, yep. smart ones, right? Mm -hmm. But but be easy to work with because you're not calling the shots. You know, if you're Prince and you're sold 20 million records, yeah, you can kind of call the shots. Um, but if you're a new artist just getting attention, uh, be smart, you know? What would you say is a good way to like keep the boat steady and to not make anybody feel like they yeah. were like just easy to replace you know because that has an effect on the music so it does how yeah. would you say like yeah like say that their band is like blowing up and somebody's yeah. acting up like how do you deal with oh, that internally man. i wish i had that answer <laughs> honestly i mean that it's it's like you know i know rob uh, trujillo I, I used to give him bass lessons years ago he was a doorman at a jazz club i played at in mm -hmm. venice beach when he was like 17 years old mm -hmm. and now he's so successful and so i i kind of watch like how did he get where he got right because mm -hmm. he's always kind of used me as a mentor it's very strange he would call me out of the blue hey man Mike Muir, uh, Suicidal Tendencies, fired their bass player, and they asked me if I wanted to go on the road. And what do you think? Why would he ask me my opinion? But I was like, well, Rob, what are you doing now? Well, I'm just doing construction. I'm not really playing bass. Oh. I'm like, well, dude, they're a band that's signed, and they they're just released a record, and they're asking you to go on tour. You can always come back and swing a hammer if it doesn't work out. Right. So he, you know, he did. He joined the band, which was his launching. I mean, him and the lead singer hit it off. They started another band, which became Infectious Grooves. All of a sudden, they're recording at A&M Studios in Hollywood, and Ozzy Osbourne walks down the hall because Ozzy was doing another record in another room. And he hears their stuff and he sees Rob and he go, comes up to Rob. Hey, Mike, what are you guys doing? And then Rob's like, yeah, we're, this band's infectious. Girl. I like what you're playing. You and I should play together sometime. Boom. Fast forward. Rob's touring with Ozzy Osbourne for probably 10 wow. years. And that led to that exposure with Ozzy probably led him to get the chance to audition for Metallica. Mm -hmm. And ultimately he got the gig. So, yeah, it's just like, you know, but he is a smart business person. Maybe it's just in his nature because he's a, he's kind of like me. He's a mellow surfing bass player mm -hmm. and he's easy to get along with. And if you look at the 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 two like James Hetfield and Lars, all the, the two leaders of Metallica, those are two alpha dogs. And Ooh. I could see that chemistry where they would butt heads. You know, they've learned to keep it together all these years, which is amazing get back to your question how do bands stay together you got to find those dynamics that's amazing yeah that's a great answer but i feel like to an extent 
if you really want to become successful, you have to like believe it. Like, you know, like, even if you have your low days and you're like, oh my God, no, I suck. Yeah. No. At the end of the day, you know, like you said, like you guys knew you were going to become something. Yeah. So how, how do you think you like implemented that into your mindset? Did it, was it like early on or did you develop that with your band? Um, I, I know for me personally, as a young kid growing up, hear stuff, I can play it easily. Um, and so it was never a challenge, you know, like to find intervals and melodies and that kind of stuff um, and rhythms. Growing as a musician, uh, you know, I, I've always been confident of my ability. I'll always see somebody who kicks my butt and <laughs> I'll just be like, whoa. Yeah. Okay. And that's what's fun. Like to this day and age, you jump on YouTube. I don't care how accomplished you are at whatever you're singing or playing or whatever it is. You go on YouTube, you'll see a twelve-year-old who can kind of smoke you, and it just kind of <laughs> yeah. keeps the keeps the humble meter in yeah, check. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's so cool. I I revel in it. I mean, I love to see like this twelve-year-old girl shredding metal guitar licks and or sweep arpeggios, and yeah. you know they spent hours at that. That just doesn't mm -hmm. come, you know, without spending the time. <clears throat> so I have a good question here. Um, what are some aspects in the music industry that you think will never go out of style, such as being punctual to gigs and being prepared? Oh, man. Okay. Oh, punctual to gigs. Let me just explain. I've been <laughs> fired from bands oh. because I was habitually late. And I always, maybe I was cocky in my subliminal mind thinking, well, I'm really good, so they're not going to fire me. Right. I can be 10, 15 minutes late. <laughs> and the reality is they can get someone else. It'll be on time. Yeah. If that's important to them, right? Yeah. And it should be because collectively, when you're working with a team, punctuality, I think, is super important. Yeah. Um, uh, Ricky Minor, who's the bassist, he was the music director for Whitney Houston for years. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to a bass clinic at SIR, and he spoke at it. And one of the main points he said was, you want to be successful in this business? Be early. Don't be on time. <laughs> be early um, and rehearse your parts. You might be a good sight reader and it got a great ear. Know your shit before you show up. Period. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because... You got one shot sometimes, especially if it's an audition. Right. My point is just if you get in that habit early, it'll never it'll never be a waste of your time to do mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Be on time, be punctual, know your stuff, and be able to fix problems. That's the other thing. Yeah. Like I've been a successful realtor with my wife for 20 years. And one of the things I learned from doing real estate is you got to promote yourself. Mm -hmm. there, there's thousands of realtors out there. And if you don't know how to market yourself and don't be afraid of it, um, they're just, you're going to get stampeded over by the others who will. And same for music. I never used to, I would go, Aziza, I would play at like Coconut Teaser, Club on Sunset Strip back in the day. And some people would come up to me going, man, you're, you're ripping on bass. What's your name? And I would say, oh, nice to meet you. I would be cordial, but I wouldn't think of the marketing moment I have. Right. Here's my card. You ever need a bass player? Call me. Ah, oh, <laughs> hello. Yeah. You know, and I know other lesser bass players that are marketers and they're out getting gigs and they're getting higher profile gigs. And I'm like, wow, OK, so they market yourself and be on time and be prepared and you will be successful. The way that I looked at music, I used to think like you have to know the rules first before you break them. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like learning music theory. Mm -hmm. I'm doing all this. And music is a whole language. 
it's like if you're learning a new language you gotta like kind of in a way become obsessed with it yeah. like read about it listen up to lectures about it or whatever and same thing like music business like music is yeah. cute music is fun right. but it it is crazy and there's yeah. so many levels to it and that's why i think when you're like a talented performer you're probably really good at a lot of other things yes yeah absolutely and when i think about having to improvise on musical right. settings that's one thing i take pride on now it, it like i'm 61 so i've been doing this damn near 50 years that's crazy <laughs> i never can't even but but my point is having gone through all these weird experiences getting into situations musically where i'm either over my head or they went somewhere sideways like i work in corporate bands and i know that the, the idiosyncrasies of some of my singers that I work with one of them will sometimes skip half the verse and go right to a chorus oh, and this is like ninja skills as being playing <laughs> so many being through so many scenarios like that yeah. you get this like uh, ninja warrior uh, skill set where you can anticipate that and of course if the front person goes left you got to go with them it doesn't matter they blew it. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a train wreck because you're going that direction. <laughs> they're going that direction. Yeah. So as a bass player now, if the singer goes to the bridge, I'm Johnny on the spot with them. And mm -hmm. we just made our own arrangement of the song, but we're still cohesive. Yep, that's a good band. Yeah. And that's why it's important to be friends with your band because people who love you yeah. and want you to sound good yeah. will go with you even if you messed up. Yeah, and <laughs> my improvisational skills from music allowed me as I learned my real estate skill set oh there's always an answer to a problem you know you got a sharp nine a flat five sharp nine chord <laughs> find those find the answer to the problem right you, somewhere in there you'll find a note that ah oh, it feels good there uh -huh. well same thing fixing a problem with the house and keeping the mindset of the buyer and seller cohesive so that it consummates the deal because in real estate we don't make a dime until the deal closes Right. And that taught me a big lesson. That guarantees performance, mm -hmm. right? It's yep. like as a musician, you walk into a club gig, they're not giving your pay before That's you get right. on that stage right. and you nail your gig. That doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. If you decide, I'm not going to play, but pay me anyway and walk out, you'll never see the money. <laughs> so you have to perform all night until the club's closed and you'll make your money. In the real estate, there's more zeros behind the paycheck, unfortunately, because <laughs> right, I'd right. rather do music. But <laughs> my point is you got to make all of it come together and all parties at the end of the day say, yep, we're done. It's a deal. Right. That's that's awesome. I love everything you just <laughs> How did said. You, real estate came into music. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I don't even have to ask about it. Everybody knows. Yeah. Um, so I guess my last question of the night. Do you have any words of advice for aspiring artists who want more gigs in Long Beach? Ooh. Ah, man. Um, go out to the clubs. Um, go to places you where you hear music you like and find out how you get a gig there. And don't be afraid to ask the bar manager, club owner, and say, hey, well, who's the contact that does the booking here, right? Mm -hmm. Um that's what I would do and and then just go out with the, your group or solo if you're solo and go out and do it if they have a some some clubs have like a kind of a jam night right mm -hmm. if you can find they're kind of hard to find um, but I've done a lot of those in Orange County clubs and 
Um, you know, I've had musicians come in that, that just get in their teeth. They need the experience on stage, right. get yep. through those butterflies. One of the funnest things uh, is uh, owning this music school is seeing young singers come up on stage for the first time. Mm-hmm. The microphone's 12, 14 inches away from them, <laughs> and they're so fearful that they, they, they don't even know. They look like a deer, right? Right. And, and they don't announce their name. They have no sense of confidence. Um, and then to see the growth, like we'll do four gigs later, the same, let's say it's a young girl. My name's Jennifer, you know, to see them just <laughs> fearful, like I'm going to sing a song by Mariah Carey now. And then they sing it, you know, and everyone's like supportive because mm-hmm. we want to be supportive. Right. And then to see that girl, like just four gigs later. Hi, my name's Jennifer. I'm going to sing a song. And just how they present themselves yeah. with that confidence. It's way bigger than music. So, right. Yeah. yeah, you just get that confidence. We want to give everybody at every level just positive energy, right? So if people wanted to get a lesson here, what would they do? Well, just find us online. It, it, we spell it The Rock, T-H-E-R-O-K, because we don't know how to spell. Okay? <laughs> okay? So just remember, The Rock Music Academy. It's therockacademy.com. Uh, the email's rockacademy at gmail.com. So... Awesome. And with that, that's all for Artist Banter this week. Don't don't forget to check out Beach News Weekly for Campus News on Daily49er.com, as well as other podcast content brought to you by the Daily 49er. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Daily49er. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. And I will talk to all of you soon. Sounds great. (laughs) 